Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami It's good to take our bearings or get our bearings. It's an interesting expression. What are we bearing to get our bearings? is like looking at what we've been carrying and where we are. Where are we? Who is there to be bearing anything? But for over a week now, we've been here working together and now we're as if sitting on the edge of a precipice of the unknown going back to the world, the edge of this reality or this gathering, these circumstances, back to something more familiar. But hopefully, as empty as the mind may be, we're not going empty-handed. We're taking gifts back with us. And it's good to recollect and reflect on what are these gifts that we've been growing for the past eight days. Well, the first gift is the gift of mindfulness. And the second gift is the gift of wisdom, of wisely seeing. And the third gift is the gift of forbearance, of heroic patience, the ability to be with things pleasant, wanted, invited, or unpleasant, unbearable, scary. All of these things have tested us and given us the stamina that the average person in this world may not have. And maybe eight days ago we didn't have it either. What we have gained is a deeper insight into our own condition, our mental condition, whether it's a pleasant one or an unpleasant one, and all the range in between those two points. But it's when we're centered in the midst, in the middle of the storm, like the well-known image of a hurricane, all around the center, it's wild, treacherous. But for those of us that are studying from the middle point, we are really understanding the forces around us. 
and we are really understanding the power of sitting in the middle of, the, of those forces and not getting swept up in them. This is a, a tremendous vantage. Now the question is, how do we sustain this middle path in the middle of the storms of our lives or the excitements, the things that we run after or the things we run away from? On one occasion, the Buddha went on alms round with his attendant Ananda. And at that time, his opponents, you might wonder, the Buddha had opponents? Well, yes. There were plenty of other renunciants in India, contemporaries of the Buddha, who were jealous and who would do things deceitful and unsavory things to get him in trouble or, or bring harm to him, bring downfall to him. This is a mild account. In this case, his opponents found some people to stand out on the street and mock the Buddha and Ananda, saying, you cowherds, you skinheads, you beggars. And this upset Ananda, and he said, Lord, let us leave this city and go somewhere else. And the Buddha said, where would we go? And Ananda said, to another city. And the Buddha said, and what if in that city we are cursed in the same way, then where would we go? Ananda said, to another city. And the Buddha pointed out to Ananda that they could not keep running away from their enemies because there is no end. People have mouths everywhere. And wherever they would wander, there would be those who would curse them, mock them, deride them. And he pointed out the importance of facing our enemies, not by running away from them, but by encountering them within our own minds, within our own hearts. And this is precisely what we've been doing here. And the example given is of a dog with mange who scratches and scratches and then gets up and goes somewhere else thinking that he'll run away from the mange. But wherever he goes, he just scratches and scratches and his condition gets worse and worse. So how can the dog overcome the mange? Not by moving around from place to place, but by being cured of this illness of his body. Then he would stop scratching. And for us, how would we get cured of our suffering? Whether the suffering is of the body or the mind, if we are strong enough, enduring enough, mindful enough, resilient enough, we can endure quite difficult pains in the body. But if those pains are compounded by our mental weakness, 
or our attitude, our aversion to the pain, then it becomes insufferable. I've seen this in my work with hospice patients who bear unendurable pain, and some of them bear it without complaint, without being beaten, and die so very, very peacefully, breathtakingly, one would say. The breath goes out just so naturally and with such a stillness. There's no struggle, no resistance, because there's no fear. In those cases, there's just a surrender to the process, and the mind is peaceful, fearless. We are famously known as human beings for seeking happiness. And what is the most common form of happiness that human beings seek? We inevitably are seeking a happiness that is undiluted and lasts forever. Sound familiar? (laughs) In whatever form we seek it, and usually we're looking for it in worldly haunts. I use the word haunts, just appeared. (laughs) A bit like the porcupine's tail (laughs) that flung its quills. What porcupines can't do. But they are haunts because they're like ghosts. These promises that the world keeps making to us in the form of possessions or experiences or our physical appearance, the strength or the looks of the body, the power of our mind to accumulate information or to invent things, to create things, to make things, to fashion things. We're very caught up with things and experiences and opinions and each other. But all of this does not satisfy our yearning for happiness. So then we come here and we think, this is here, I'm going to find something. Now, it's very important for us to understand if we're looking for happiness, what is it that makes us happy? And here we've been checking that out. And we can see that when the mind is caught up with sense desire, then what we used to think was so beneficial for us to gratify our senses, here it becomes an obstacle to be caught up with sense gratification because the mind becomes tight around one object and holds on to it and realizes this will not last. You start to see this doesn't last. And the same way when our happiness comes from wishing harm to others, then when we sit with the silence of our own hearts, we start to see that this is too is not a happiness. This is a misery. Because when we come here and look into the mind and see what the results of our actions are, we feel regret. We feel guilty. We feel mean. We don't feel good. We don't feel peaceful with ourselves. 
So a very important lesson in this internal archaeology, interior exploration, is the moral aspect of true happiness. That to have peace and well-being within, to have a mind that is bright, whatever conditions are coming up, we need to act, speak, and think with a moral base, with virtue, with good intention, wholesome intention, wholesome aspiration, with a sense of not harming, of non-hatred, of non-greed, of non-selfishness. And to be able to do this, we have to at least understand what our motivation is and what the condition of our mind is. So if we're always running away from our enemies, then we just are driven by fear. Fear of not getting what we want. I don't want to be called names. I know what that feels like. Walking on alms in England some 23 years ago and being spat on. Or in New Zealand, walking on the street of the village I was living in, I was in the Bible Belt. And so, dressed like this, you know, one could assume this person is an enemy of some kind. These things happen, but if we reflect on our virtue, if we have virtue, if we live in virtue, if we uphold virtue, then we can be upheld by that. There's a very lovely saying, Dhammahave Rakati Dhammacharing, in the scriptures. It means those who uphold the Dhamma, those who care for the Dhamma, the Dhamma cares for them. The Dhamma upholds them. So to be able to encounter the enemy, we can't do that with fear. We have to come from a place of being courageous, even if we're scared. We can still be courageous because we will never stop running, as the Buddha said, unless we can encounter the enemies within us. And then anyone who abuses us or insults us would be someone that we could look at with compassion rather than with ill will. If we can't look at them with loving kindness, we can bring up forgiveness and compassion. Anyone in this world who has enough wisdom, enough perspective on our human condition would not harm another person. So those who cause harm must be deeply suffering or very deluded. And that summons us, it calls us to be compassionate, to be, if not loving, but not to be upset by their suffering, if we can. To do that, we have to practice being with our fear, not giving it another inch and making the container of the heart bigger. So as fast as we can, 
bring up that which will move fear away. Move it along. Not violently, because it doesn't work. Violent reaction tends to feed fear and feed anger. We become intolerant of our anger. But if we see it for what it is, if we know that it's empty, it's just a phenomena, it's a thought, it's a mental sankara, creation, a fabrication of our mind. So we turn away from it as quickly as we can. And instead we bring up that which will support us, that which will hold us. If we shine the light on fear and call it by its true name, then it, it shrinks. We have the power, if we can do that, with mindfulness and clear comprehension That's a wisdom that is gentle and caring for the health of the mind. It's compassionate. It's not being violent within. It's not causing a war. I hate this fear. I've got to get over it. But it's just stating a boundary. This is a sacred space. And within this sacred space, the poisonous states of mind or whatever brings up fear, these things retire. They may not retire immediately, but if we're patient and practice and keep applying the right antidotes, then eventually, with endurance and with a non-harming attitude, we protect other beings and we protect ourselves and our sacred inner sanctuary. The refuge that we're looking for is the heart, a sacred space in the heart. Now the Buddha has given us a map, and this map is not a GPS, but this is a geodomic positioning system, a goodness positioning system that We have to find the coordinates. Okay? We've gotten a sense of the the coordinates and how to get back there. Once you've got the coordinates in your GPS, in fact, our coordinates are not on Google (laughs) because there's been a change in the name of the township. So people get sent all around the houses looking for... Satisaraniya Hermitage. But once they've come and the coordinates are known to them, then they don't have any trouble. So that's why it's so valuable that we come on retreat and we establish the coordinates. Okay, now I know. I need to be mindful. I need to meditate. I need to still the mind. Bring it to stillness. Bring all these fires at the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, sensation, and and thought, consciousness, and put them out, all these fires, one by one. Dampen them and keep them cool. Train, restrain the senses. Without restraint, we're just fanning the fires deludedly. But restraint of the senses, using our precepts, until we get the hang of where it's actually safe. 
Because otherwise, delusion will tell us, just keep fanning the flames, it's really pleasant in there. And we become used to getting overheated, burning up, getting stressed out, being angry, and not knowing how to settle down, cool that fire, and make peace here. This leads us to the unskillful habit of expecting that the fires are in the world, and it's the people that we're dealing with and the conditions of the world that we need to change. So, just as we look for our happiness in the world, we blame our suffering on the world. But that's not right. Having established the coordinates of the Buddha's positioning system, BPS, then we know that the fires, the origin, the samudaya of our dukkha, the origin of our suffering is here. And if we can put out the fires within the mind, we just need to understand the nature of these fires and see how they burn us up. And that will be our safety. And it takes time because of our habits. But by seeing and knowing, come back to the middle, establish our rightful place in those coordinates that we know to be true, upholding us. Then we feel such a joy. In a second, as soon as the angry thought or the fearful state of mind dissolves, there's peace. There's well-being, there's ease, and we can take another breath. We just have to be with the truth that is within us. It's not out there anywhere. And we keep bringing our attention back to that, and the truth will set us free. If we study ourselves, then we will know the nature of every other being. And we can have compassion for other people who don't know where the coordinates of truth are. So they're still flapping around, making a big noise, hurting other people, hurting themselves. And if we get in their way or if we spend time with them, we might pick up that habit. So keeping spiritual friendship is really a a very important beneficial support to steady us on this path, no matter what experiences come to us in our lives. If we are with good spiritual friends, that will really keep us on track. It is not the solid reed that becomes a flute, but the hollow reed. So, we must empty ourselves of fear, empty ourselves of hatred, empty ourselves of ill will in all its forms, empty ourselves of attachment, greed, of wanting, of unwholesome desires, 
that lead us astray and never slake our thirst. We must empty ourselves of delusion, of confusion, by knowing our rightful home in these coordinates of truth. And then we will be like that hollow reed that becomes a flute. And instead of fear, we will experience unconditional love, unconditional compassion, unconditional joy, and unconditional equanimity. These are the four sublime abodes of the mind. And these two will support us in our practice, wherever we are. Dhammakataya sadhu karanga dhammaste